RBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 16. In this week's episode, we begin our look into some alternate suspects. We're not necessarily going to be only on alternate suspects for a while, but it felt like time to start taking a little bit closer look into Youngster and KD. In this week's episode, we focused on Youngster. We went through his movements that day, his statement to police, where the consistencies and inconsistencies were and his criminal records, which led up all the way to his death. And I asked you listeners this week to uh, use that voicemail line, which, by the way, is always available for the follow-up episodes. Uh, It doesn't get used a whole lot, but this week we do have several voicemails and a lot of listener questions. I'm joined by Mike and Zach here in the studio. Hey. Hey, guys. And we're going to take a quick break and get right into all of your questions, comments, and concerns. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. If you guys are listening on the day it's released, we're currently in Austin, and I'm disappointing people while Bob's doing fancy stuff. <laughs> you know what? So, yes, uh, today in our Truth and Justice time machine, right now, Zach and I are at CrimeCon in Austin, having a good time. I bet at least, we should make an over-under on this, I bet at least 10 people in coming up to talk to you think that you are me. I, I bet I bet you're right. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, not many people know really what I look like. They know that I'm a big guy. I'm tattooed and have a beard. Mm -hmm. You're also a big guy that's tattooed. Every one of those attributes fits me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many people are going to come up and be like, Bob, it's so nice to meet you. I should just go with it. You should go with it. Just go with it. 100% go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you're going to disappoint anybody. I think everybody's going to be super excited to see you. We do have a little bit of bummer in our scheduling. If you are in Austin right now and you're just getting up and, uh, I don't know, hitting the treadmill, getting a buffet breakfast or whatever you're going to do before you start hitting the streets of CrimeCon. Today, you can find me at, I think, 12 o'clock. I'm doing a live True Crime binge episode with Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage. And then at 1 o'clock, I'm doing another live True Crime binge episode with Derek and Stephanie from Crime Weekly, their podcast is called. Uh, then I think at two o'clock I'm doing an ethics and true crime panel discussion with Sarah Turney, uh, with a few other true crime podcasters and reporters, uh, along with Kelsey German, uh, Libby German, one of the victims from the Delphi murders, her sister will be on the panel with us and five o'clock. I have true crime trivia at 
3 o'clock, I think, is when uh, Podcast Row opens. And that's where Zach will be sitting there all by his onesie, meeting people while I am out in, on these panels. So if you see a guy that you think might be Bob Ruff, it's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you see anybody at Podcast Row, it's it's an imposter so on great. Friday. It's not it's not me. It's Zach. It's gonna be, be so wonderful. great, dude. I'm excited to meet everybody though. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. And then uh, Saturday tomorrow, uh, in our Truth and Justice time machine, uh, we'll both be. I have no, no speaking engagements at all, so we'll be hanging out in Podcast Row pretty much all day. We'll be the guys with the uh, cheap beer and expensive whiskey. All right, let's get into these voicemails first, and then we've got a couple listener questions. Our first voicemail comes from James. Hey, Bob. This is James Dallas. I think that if Youngster had been involved in it, I think that we had, would have seen more violent things early on in his criminal history instead of later on in his life, uh, unless there's things that he done that he got away with. Thanks, man. Hey, James, thanks for calling in. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree. You know, it's it was real easy to look at Youngster's criminal history, right? To just look at, like, a list of charges and be like, oh, look, here's a... Car theft, which personally I think is completely unrelated because I don't think Catalina's murder had anything to do with a car theft. But then you see there's, oh, there's assaulting a family member and there's home invasion and that's where he's killed. And so that that, that broad look at it makes you think, oh, yeah, well, these are some of the behaviors we might expect out of someone who committed this crime. But when you look closer at it and you look at all the meta and you find out that, you know, for the first 10 years after this, all you see out of youngster is that you know he's he's getting caught with pot, which in most places is completely legal now. It's not that big of a deal. He does have uh, an assaulting family member where he did he did slap someone, which is certainly no excuse for that. And yes, that is violent. But but I don't think you know ten years later, uh, when you're having an argument with a family member and hitting someone with your hand, and and I'm assuming it's an open hand too, because typically those reports will say with a closed fist. If it was that, um, again, no excuse for that, not excusing that whatsoever, but that's not the kind of violent tendencies and patterns that I would expect to see out of someone involved in this, in this crime or that I would be looking for. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I mean, I made a note of that just like the caller to James that I can't tie those two together. Yeah, you know, that is not a history of violence, you know, and, and typically you can see crimes escalate in violence. Right. And his really never do. I mean, you get to the point where he he has this altercation with a family member. We don't know. I'm not saying it's right, again, just like you said, but right. we don't know the circumstances around it. But he, he wasn't brutally attacking this person. He wasn't murdering this person. This was, an, it seems to be an isolated incident. We don't know for sure, but it seems to be. Where everything else is is drugs, is fraud. You know, it seems to be like he has some some robbery attempts, but they all seem to be without people there. Right, yeah, there was a burglary of a home. And that's what you see. Like, I see a pattern, at least for those first 10 years, of, of really avoidance of conflict. You know, there's, there's nothing in there where he's creating. So, so you're looking at, and again, this doesn't mean that he's not a suspect or he's not involved. But we're, when we're looking to see, are there any clues in his criminal path or his criminal behavior that are indicators he could have been involved in this? I don't see it. it was because, yeah, they're, they're, these are non So he goes from murder to carrying around a little pot, breaking into a house when nobody's home. You know, things like that. It's just there's definitely nothing there to me that like directs me right back towards the the murder as a suspect. All right. Our next voicemail comes from Janice. Hey, Bob, Mike and Zach. This is Janice. I just wanted to give my thoughts on the youngster situation. 
Uh, Bob, while you were reading through Youngster's Charges, I found myself thinking exactly what you said at the end of the episode. He's continually charged with petty shit that no doubt lead to hefty fines that are next to impossible to pay after continually getting so many. It's a vicious cycle seemingly meant to do just what you said, keep people from breaking free of their criminal past. Now, even with that information, I don't know how I feel about him being involved in Catalina's death, but it still makes more sense to me than Jennifer being involved, in my opinion. Obviously, the escalation of his crime seemingly coming quite a while after Catalina's death is questionable, but his loud behavior with his brother coming out of the apartment building initially at the time of the murder is suspicious. So I think that it makes more sense for him to be involved than Jennifer, but it's it's still questionable. Thanks. Yeah, Janice, you make some good points, and, and the, the, man, is that a tough line to toe when we're when we're looking at the fact that he seems to have gotten caught up in a system, or there's a possibility of that because that's rough, right? Because there's victims involved, possibly involved in the crime that we're talking about, the murder of Catalina. And so you don't want to sound like you're feeling bad for this person. I mean, he was killed during a home invasion. Bad guy, right? But at the same time, what we do, we're, you know, we're looking at criminal justice reform. We look at issues like this. We look at how common it is, the institutional racism that, we, that exists in our criminal justice system, where especially uh, poorer minorities, specifically black, especially in the Houston area, that do get caught up in this, where they get they get into this cycle and they can't get out of it. And that's when I look at youngster's background, I see that's what I see. I, I see a guy that got that got caught up in the that made some some silly mistakes young, got caught up into a system, couldn't fight his way out, and we see the same pattern with him we see with so many other people where they just they get caught up in it and they can't get out of it to the point where they're you know they're they end up ten, twelve years later, uh I think it's twelve years later when he when he was killed in that home invasion doing something that's completely out of character for them based on on their previous record where they they get mixed up with guys with guns and go and break into a house for this home invasion and you end up with the shootout at the OK Corral in that house. You've got you know you, I don't know what the circumstances were but we you know that he went in with I think three other guys with guns. It sounded like there was three other guys in a in a fourth in a car. So right. I mean it was there was a group of them. Right. And and then the people they were they were Going in the house they were going into, those people were armed and were firing back at them. Uh, so, so you know, but that's I don't think the way he died defines his life. I'm not saying he was a good guy, I'm not saying that, that you know, we shouldn't be scrutinizing him, but I also don't think that what I'm seeing, you know, you, you said, Janice, that uh, it's suspicious the way that they came out and were hollering about, you know, how everybody should have heard Eva screaming. To me, that's what that's what I saw when I when I read the report. I didn't see, oh, here's somebody with a history. You can try to wedge it in, but it's not really there the way I see it anyway. I, I didn't see somebody that has a, a a history of violence, the type of person that might fit the profile that might do something like this. What I saw is somebody that is is more likely that, that is pretty likely to help somebody out who's trying to avoid the police. I, I have to agree, and I think. You know, the one thing about this that I caught out of his statement, and I don't know how many people caught it, maybe a lot, and maybe it doesn't stand out to a lot of people, but in part of his statement, when he talks to, to Janet Dorsey, uh-huh. and he ends up going to her apartment to use the phone, however that happens, right. we're pretty sure that happened. I mean, everybody, it seems like that 
for sure happened. It's hard to know. Yeah, yeah. But there's no evidence that it didn't happen. But he talks yeah. about he talks about paging his buddy, this Richard Smith, uh-huh. to tell him that this lady might have been killed here, and there's news all over the place, and come down if you want to be on TV. Right. That doesn't seem like something you would do if you were involved or knew anything really sure. about it. Yeah, I, I don't see any of his behaviors, but again, you know, his behaviors based on. So we got that right. That's that's his version of events. But it just seems real weird to me to do that. Like if I was if I would have sure. anything to do with it, I don't think I would try to be like, hey, dude, there's news everywhere, man. Come down. Let's 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 yeah, get on TV. Come get on TV. Right. For sure. That would be. But, but what I'm getting at is so that is his version of that. Right. So maybe mm-hmm. that didn't happen. Maybe he didn't actually call Richard. But so you look at uninvolved parties. You look at the statements of Ruby Sullivan and of Cena Sullivan. Like and like, you know, we we had this myself included. This image of them that like the cops get there and they take off running away. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case. They 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 walk out. They made themselves known to everybody when they walk out of Eva's apartment. They walk over and then and stand there talking to Cena before she says. Then then they walked off. They didn't run away. So even if it was even even if they didn't really go call Richard to come try to get on TV, they're still not demonstrating the behaviors. Of someone who was just involved in a in a vicious murder because that the behavior I would expect there for them who doesn't you know obviously Eva can't Jennifer can't they live there, but Katie and Youngster could just get the hell out of there. Yeah, they could be go- you know you know what I mean. So so they come think about this for a minute. They come out of the apartment after the uh, the EMS is arriving on scene right or during that time right before EMS gets on scene. Mm-hmm. So if they're involved. They're obviously so. So, what's that scenario look like, right? So, so let's say they are the one. Let's say Eva's telling the truth and the screaming happened, and for some reason she's saying that they're. I, I mean, I don't think there's any way they could be involved without Eva also being involved personally. But if you try to think of some crazy scenario where they are, in any scenario, once Eva's gone to the manager's office, they were then out of the apartment, out of Catalina's apartment, so they were out where they could they could escape. They don't live there. All they got to do is walk 150 feet and they're past the apartment across the street. Mm-hmm. But instead, they go up into the apartment directly above the crime scene and then sit there and wait until after there are people there and then come back out. There's just a whole lot about their actions that don't make sense. But when I look at their criminal history, I see that they've got involvement with police. Probably a distrust for police when you're getting picked up. I mean, how many was it? Two, three, four times you got picked up for possession of marijuana. You know, like who gives a shit about marijuana? But they're just. But this is. It's so hard to see on paper if if you if you know someone or talk to people that have lived in these communities, especially minority people and, and people that are maybe a lower socioeconomic class, people poorer people. Uh, that live in these communities and how they just they just learn to hate the police because they're just trying to live their fucking lives and they're constantly getting harassed and picked up and shaken down and stopped and frisked. So you know when I see his record, I see somebody like if 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 someone gra- if, if if say Eva grabbed them upstairs and and said, "Look, you guys need to say you heard some screaming. Like I need you to say this. Or if if you talk to the cops, just get out of here. If anybody says anything, I could totally see them." Going sure, no problem, and saying that, and then just get, walking away and not caring about it. Uh, I think it's more indicative of that than it's indicative of them uh, of youngster being a violent person. All right, this next one's from Patty. Hi, Bob and friends. This is Patty Delaney. I live in Pittsburgh, and I love your podcast. 
Um, I listened to it today. This is Sunday, uh, May 30th, and about um, Youngster. And, you know, uh, in the profile that Jim Clemente provided, it's a personal cause homicide, and I do believe that, and I don't think that Youngster did it because of that. And I see only, I really do only see it being focused on Eva because she's the one that had something to lose in this particular situation. So, and I don't think Jennifer has anything to do with it either. Um, I agree with you, Bob, completely, as all signs are pointing to Eva. So I'll tell you, I'll start with this right here. I agree that that it's a personal cause homicide. It doesn't necessarily mean that it points to Eva. It could be somebody else. But I can tell you, it sure doesn't seem like it points to Youngster at all. I agree with you. And I think, and I know some people are resistant to it. And that's that's good. That's what, you know, we've got diverse opinions, different people looking from from different angles. But I, as as an investigator, just looking at the case objectively and the way that we do, when we when you, when you go back to ground zero, you throw out the original case and you start over. Stop, you know, you, you get rid of all the preconceived notions from the police and just start looking at evidence. I've, I've, I've got to say that I agree with Patty that, you know, for me, things are starting to, with every click of narrowing down our scope, every time we get a new piece of information, a new piece of evidence, it sure does keep pointing towards Eva. That's a topic for another day, and that requires more investigation. But certainly, I don't see anything in the profile. I don't see anything in the history that that we just broke down with Youngster, in my opinion, that point towards Youngster. On the topic of Eva, uh, this is a good time, I guess, to to, to bring this out because there, there was still, and this is the, this is the last we're going to discuss it. At least, at last, I'm going to discuss it. Uh, but the whole discussion about you know whether Eva was was a sex worker at the time or not. Uh, there was more discussions on the on, on Facebook and other social media about her criminal charge uh, a public lewdness it was you know the people were saying oh it was just it was she, she was charged with public indecency it happened at work well the only way we knew it happened at work is because she said it happened at work but so the first thing i did is did quite a bit of research into the actual charge of public lewdness and public lewdness is most typically charged in texas for sex work uh, or prostitution i know that's not that's the not the proper word but i just want to clear up because there's there's some people have said that they consider dancing at a, at a strip club as sex work as opposed to. So I, when I say sex work, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having sex for money. But the, 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 the definition of the law says it is a sex crime where someone is having sex in front of people, sex in public. And it doesn't actually say for money. It's, it's a, having, doing actual sex acts in public in front of people. And it is well. You can look this stuff up online in Texas. It's most typically charged. It's a, it's it's a it's a minor charge to charge somebody who is doing sex work. In e- so from that, I went ahead and filed an open record. I started looking up Eva's criminal records. What I found was that she was arrested. She served two days before she bonded out. Ended up pleading guilty in her sentence. There was a fine, and she was sentenced to three days in jail two of which she had already served. So she actually had to go back to jail for another day after she, after she pled out of the case. I filed a FOIA request. There's very little information on the case. Sadly, there was not much of a narrative at all, but, but she was telling the truth when she said that, that it happened at work. It, what it appears is that there was sex work or prostitution happening 
not just with her, but with several people at her work, um, where they were they were taking money from clients for sex and sex acts at work. And what happened was the only information I have on it is that Houston's Vice Squad, which is an undercover uh, squad that goes in and does busts like this, uh, looks like they had a long undercover operation at the club because they were you know looking for this going on at the club. Uh, actually happened to a club around here, Zach, it's probably what, maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, probably 10, 10 15, yeah. Yeah, exact same thing uh, at the Pleasant Lake uh, mm-hmm. strip club. But anyway, the they finally there was basically they finally did the raid after the undercover stuff, and there was I think eight different women arrested. So I'm, I'm trying to get more. I'm going to try to get more. I'm going to look through now that I have the names of the other people involved uh, and see if I can pull up any other police reports that that maybe give a little more of a narrative. But that's all I know is that it was the the vice squad for Houston PD had a sting operation. For what appears to be for uh, for sex acts for money at the strip club, and Eva, along with several other uh, dancers, there were all arrested and charged with the with the public lewdness there. And I don't know about the rest of their sentences. I haven't looked it up, but I know as, as I said, Eva pled it out and ended up being uh, getting three days in jail. So I'm kind of hoping that maybe somebody in that group didn't plead out because if they didn't, then there will be more information. Uh, in the case file about what actually happened. Um, so I did want to put that out there. That's, you know, the, as far as I'm, I'm, I'm putting that to bed. It doesn't, there's no reason for it to be a topic of conversation anymore. You can believe that Eva was a sex worker or that she wasn't. It really doesn't matter as we move forward from here, but I'm done talking about it. And next voicemail, Mike. This one's from Matt. Hey, Bob, this is Matt from Massachusetts. I love the podcast. I'm calling because I definitely believe that everyone from the upstairs uh, apartment was involved, including Jennifer. And hear me out. We know that none of their stories make sense, including Jennifer's. So go back to the statements of Red Rock and Housen from episode five. Very consistent. And they also fit the statements made by others. So they walk up to see Jennifer at the bottom of the stairs. Red Rock talks to Jennifer for several minutes, all the while Jennifer's trying to get rid of them, and she's by herself the entire time. So having struck out, then Red Rock and Housen go back to Red Rock's apartment for 25 to 30 minutes to have a little smoke before returning and seeing the ambulance and all the people, people gathered around. So knowing the timeline, they must have seen Jennifer either as the murders were taking place or immediately after the so-called screams were heard. So what was she doing when they approached? Why did she not ask them for help or even mention that Eva had run across the street to get help because there was an emergency in that apartment? She didn't say anything to them. She tried to get rid of them. So I know many have ruled Jennifer out because she didn't know any of the details about the murder. But this is what I can't get past. If she were a lookout, would she know those details? Or would she not know the kind of knife that was used, not know anything about the wallet, but yet also make misleading statements trying to hide her own uh, involvement? That's what I can't get past. Love the podcast. Can't wait to hear the discussion. Thanks, Bob. 
Hey, Matt, you, you make some really good points, uh, and I agree with you that Red Rock and Howlson's statements are very consistent. They're actually one of the, surprisingly, they're, they're one of the anchors uh, that we have um, in our timeline because they're so consistent. Jennifer, so, so Jennifer describes the interaction in the exact same way that Red Rock describes the interaction, in the exact same way that Housen describes the interaction. And then also June Sage says that when Jennifer knocked on her door, she saw these two men approach. She says two or three guys, but approach, talk to her, and then leave. So I th- I'm pretty comfortable that that went down in the way it went down. As far as the timeline goes, I, I don't think we can use you know the fact that they say they were gone for 25 or 30 minutes and they come back and the ambulance is there. I, I don't think that helps us. Number one, there, there's some stuff coming out this week in the episode about the timeline that, that shakes things up a bit. Also, everybody's saying, I think, I'll tell you this, uh, as an example. Keith Truesdale, in his statement, says uh, he's checking fire extinguishers at 945 when Lavana grabs him and tells him to go to the apartment. What we know from the police reports and some of the information we'll be talking about on Sunday is that at 942, Keith Truesdale made the third call to 911 from inside the apartment well after EMS was already on scene. So, so you know, when we're looking at you know, well, June Sage says it was about 9.30. Well, yeah, so Keith Truesdale said it was 9.45 when he was outside. Obviously, it was well before that. Those times don't do anything. Certainly, I think it's weird that she shoes them away instead of asking for help, but it all depends on what Jennifer knew and how she got there. Is it a possible scenario that maybe she was being a lookout? On the surface, I would say, sure, it does. Uh, I don't know if I agree with you that it says that she was talking to them for several minutes. That's not the way I interpret the interaction. Um, the way I interpret she's knocking, they walk up, she turns and they say, Hey, where's the Mexican girl? And she says, she's asleep. Get out of here. And he says, what are you doing? She says, nothing. Get out of here. And they leave. I mean, that whole entire interaction could have happened in 30 seconds, maybe a minute, maybe 20 seconds, but I don't think several minutes went by during that. But then, but then, but what it does is it presents a lot more questions. So, okay. So if she was a lookout. And that explains why she doesn't have any guilty knowledge of the inside of the crime scene. And she was a lookout for, you said everybody's involved, right? So who Eva, Katie, and Youngster are inside. But they, you, you said, well, maybe she would confess but try to limit her involvement. or, or But no, she confesses. So she, she puts herself in prison. She says, yes, I was the lookout. Yes, I was there. This is what happened. But then makes up two names of people that don't exist. You know, and, and again, that goes back to that whole code of the streets conversation. Like, well, maybe she just didn't want to snitch on them. Bullshit. I don't agree with that because the police told her that Eva snitched on her. And she did snitch on Eva. She tried. But so, so you got to look at that. So if, so if it's a scenario where Eva, Katie and Youngster are all involved and Jennifer's trying to protect them, Jennifer tried to snitch on Eva. She told Detective Swainson or excuse me, Detective Allen that Eva told her that her and a guy were going to go downstairs and rough Catalina up. And that then when she gets back, she saw Eva and this guy come out of the apartment and that Eva and this guy had killed the the person inside. So there's, there's no code of the streets here. There's no not being a snitch. There's no protecting Eva. She said that's what happened. She straight up threw Eva under the bus and Detective Allen refused to believe it. I'm not saying it was true. I also don't think it's it's completely out of the question that it's true and that Jennifer knew it. I, you know, it's, it would seem weird that she's still holding that information back now if it was true. 
But there, but there, she's never she's never trying to not involve Eva in the in the scenario. And there's just all these these different behaviors. You know, why if she's the lookout in Catalina's apartment for a crime that she knows is happening in Catalina's apartment, then why is she knocking on June Sage's door? You know, there, there's just there's a lot of it. Just I think it's a great thought, and 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 I'm not knocking you for 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 your opinion here, Matt. But it's for me like once you have that thought, as with anything, then you start have to asking. You know, it's the scientific method, right? So you t- we take some evidence and we develop a theory. And this theory is that that Eva is or that Jennifer is a lookout for the other three in the apartment. So then once you make the theory based on the evidence, then you have to test that theory against all of the rest of the evidence. And that, in my opinion, is where this starts to fall apart. Because then you have to start doing some crazy mental gymnastics to be like, okay, well, why was she knocking on June's door? It, well, and then you come up with a well, maybe because, but there we don't get to do maybe because it just it doesn't make sense. Why did she try to implicate Eva, but in a di- completely different way? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe be again. It's another maybe because, and then well, then she does finally confess, but then confesses and doesn't involve. E- you see what I'm saying? It, it just to, for me personally, it just the back testing of the theory with the preponderance of evidence causes the theory to crumble on itself. What if that happened a little earlier? What if she was going downstairs to attempt to use Catalina's phone instead of Janet's phone? What if she went downstairs before she went to Janet's? Before she went to Janet's. In in Youngster's statement, which we, we know, we have no idea where to anchor anything. Right. But at some point he says he sees them talk to them and then she leaves right. to go somewhere. So what if that happened earlier? Which, which I'll, I'll preface that by saying also that doesn't make a lot of sense, but none of it makes sense. Yeah, I, it's not impossible. But we also have, remember, Cena and Ruby Sullivan that both saw Jennifer walk back to the scene from away from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, so at some point she was there and then it, and then she left. Yeah. And then came back after, you know, after people got on scene. So, you know, when 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 youngster sees her, I mean. I'll tell you, I, I kind of lay this out in the episode coming Sunday, but the more I'm looking at the theory I'm starting to work off of is that Youngster was never outside, and everything he's trying to relay is a combination of what he was told to say and what he saw from looking out the window. It, it, let me give you one example about that because it's not covered in Sunday's ep- this coming Sunday's episode, uh, but it's something I thought of or through some discussions on the fan page this weekend got me thinking. People come ba- have come back to, well, yeah, but there's Jennifer's fingerprints, Jennifer's fingerprints, Jennifer's fingerprints. If she's not involved, how are her fingerprints on the outside of the the sliding glass door? You know, and I've said before, I think at some point she probably jumped the fence and looked in, but didn't go in. And then, you know, the counter to that is, so what, Pam Wiley and Keith Truesdale are lying? Because they both said and testified to the fact that they know Jennifer never jumped the fence. But the reality is they don't have to be lying because they can't know that Jennifer never jumped the fence. Because Keith jumps in and read his statement. He explains. He he jumps the fence. Once he gets inside, he's scanning the apartment. He's walking through. He's looking back and forth, sees the body, then goes around the corner and starts moving the pot out of the way and getting the door unlocked. From that position, one, he has no clear view of the patio. Two, he wasn't looking back at the patio. Meanwhile, Pam Wiley is at the front door waiting for him to unlock it. From the front door, she has no view of the patio. It's impossible to see the patio from there. So they may 
think there's no chance Jennifer jumped the fence. But the reality is, Pam says when she got on scene, Jennifer was there. And then she goes to the door. Keith goes inside. Neither of them can see the patio. Where's Jennifer? We know from Cena and Ruby that Eva went took her ass right upstairs right then. Mm-hmm. Where's Jennifer? Well, what do we hear from, from Youngster? Youngster says, I saw two maintenance men jump the patio fence. Well, we know that only one maintenance man jumped the patio fence. Now, the youngster could be lying. He could be wrong. But maybe he did see. I mean, is there a possibility that he did see two people jump the fence? And from look at the pictures of the apartment. Look at the angle of that bedroom window looking down. It's not a good angle looking straight down like that. Is there a possibility that Keith jumped the fence? And then the second person he saw was Jennifer jumping the fence. That very well could be. Yeah. And, and so that's where, you know, we're trying to look at every single piece of every, you know, so like that particular part of Youngster's statement. He says, I saw two maintenance men jump the fence. Well, nope, that's bullshit because only one did. But then if you look at it, well, is it bullshit? Why would he say two? Where's the utility in that? Why doesn't it make sense? He obviously saw somebody jump the fence. He knew someone jumped the fence and he wasn't outside. So he had to see that happen. So maybe there was two and one of them was Jennifer. So anyway, Matt, yeah, it's, I just feel like when, it, when we backtest the theory against the evidence that it just creates more problems, not ruling it out, but I just, it, it would be tough for me to fit that scenario in with all of the evidence. All right. This voicemail is from Danny from the UK. Hi, Bob. This is Danny from Coventry, UK. I love in the show. I just had some thoughts about Youngster. Obviously, the fact that he became a career criminal doesn't mean that he was necessarily involved in Catalina's murder. But I think he has to be up there as a suspect because of his proximity to the crime. Um, he was in the flat upstairs where the wallet is subsequently found. And yeah, and also the modus operandi of his subsequent crimes, um, for example, the, uh, the, person, the woman being hit during the burglary in which he lost his life, and the fact that he doesn't think anything of hitting women like he hit Jacqueline and his family means we can't rule him out as a suspect who is violent towards Catalina. I'd also think that his behavior towards Jennifer, um, getting into bed with a 15-year-old as an 18-year-old man, is very questionable and, um, and borderline, if not actually abusive. So yeah, those are my thoughts on Youngster. While I'm here, I'll just also say, free Ellie Wayne, a wrongfully convicted woman um, from Coventry, UK. Uh, those are my thoughts. Thanks, Bob. Bye. All right, thanks, Danny. I'm not familiar with the Ellie Wayne case, but definitely worth taking a look at. Appreciate you mentioning that. Uh, as far as as youngster, to try to I'll try to backtrack through the stuff that you said. One um, questionable him getting into bed with Jennifer, for sure. That is based on what we know. But keep in mind, what did Eva what did Eva tell police? Eva thought she was eighteen, I believe. Eva said that Jennifer told her she was eighteen. So it's very possible that Jennifer told youngster she was eighteen. Also, people have been assuming that they were having sex in that bed. Uh, the, we, maybe they were, but we don't have any clear indication of that. We know at night when they went in and they were laying there talking and sleeping, they were all three in the room. So we don't even know if there was any sexual encounter there or not. But yeah, youngster could very well could have thought she was she was 18 years old. In fact, I would I would assume probably did think that. As far as his crimes and how they how they they link him to this crime, I don't think they link him to this crime. I agree with you, Danny, that you know obviously his proximity to the crime, the fact that he's in the apartment where the wallet's found. Keeps him on the list as a suspect. 100% agree with that. In my opinion, from what I'm seeing so far, he's, he's not, he's not, it's not high on my list of suspects, but certainly is a suspect. As far as the behaviors and the other crimes, 
you know, I, I mean, yeah, when you but when you see that 10 years after this, that he slaps a family member shows that, you know, yeah, I guess you can say that means that he doesn't have a problem hitting a woman. I don't know that that links him to this crime. Again, we don't know the circumstances. I, and that, that's what's tough with not having the full court documents for some of these. Because I, I know someone very close to me who, a female, who if you look at her criminal record, uh, was arrested for punching her husband in the face. And, and that's on her record. And you would think that's a violent person. Well, the, the real story is that her husband threw her across the room at one point. And then when she tried to run upstairs to to get her kids to get out of the house, the husband grabbed her by the back of her shirt and she wheeled around and punched him in the face. And then he called 911. Not saying that's what happened here, just saying just the fact that we know that that there was an incident where he hit a family member in the face doesn't necessarily mean that you know he's linked to this crime or he's a chronic abuser of women. We don't know. And then something else that's been brought up is, as you see, I believe what you were articulating there is uh, the the woman being hit in the head in the crime where he lost his life, how that's similar to Catalina being hit and links him to the crime. Again, we're talking 12 years later uh, and a few things about that. There were multiple offenders. Nowhere in the reports does it say that Youngster is the person that hit the woman in the head. And then when we look at the circumstances, so the reason Jim profiled Catalina's killer as as possibly being a woman is not because she was hit over the head with a pot. It, it's taking everything together. It's because a 71-year-old, five foot one woman was by herself and was completely defenseless, was hit over the head with a pot in order to get control. When, in his opinion, and I agree, the entire purpose of the attack was murder. So it wasn't like they're trying to just get her out of the way. They weren't just trying to knock her down so they could tie her up and steal something. They knocked her. They hit her over the head in order to get enough control over her to then continue murdering her. So knowing all of that, and we asked the big, the big thing we're looking at is always the why. That's what behavior analysis is. Why did someone need to do that? And in Jim's opinion, Based on his years of experience and in investigating all these these uh, violent crimes, literally thousands of them, when he sees that behavior under these circumstances, typically it is a female offender who who did it because they just you know they they, they if they're smaller female they often don't feel that they could just use their hands and body to get control of another person so they make so they typically will grab objects they find to do that so where he came up with that. Now, if you look at the, the case where a youngster got killed, first of all, we don't know that youngster is the one that pistol whipped the woman in the head. But secondly, the whys are very different there. It's a very, very different set of circumstances. As I mentioned earlier, this was the shootout at the OK Corral. You've got a group of, of three or four offenders breaking into a house with three or four people inside. Both sides are armed. And in the melee, this woman gets hit over the head with the butt of a pistol. She get what we would call pistol whipped. Why did someone do that to her? Well, I don't know. What, it seems like the intention of that of that home invasion was was robbery. So so the goal was to get something out of the house, right? And they're being shot. So there, there's a million different whys. Did she get pistol whipped because there were people shooting at them and they ran and she ran at them and they knocked her just to get her out of the way? Or was she just the one that opened the door 
and they were incapacitating her quickly and effectively so that they could move on because she's not the target, right? So if the target, if the plan is to kill her, you just shoot her. And we're like Catalina was the target. Uh, but the fact that if she's not the target, if they're just trying to get into the house and they're just trying to quickly immobilize her and then still be, have, you know, guns up and ready to defend themselves against the people who are defending themselves inside the house. There's a million different scenarios. The point is, it's a very different why the woman in that case was hit over the head than why Catalina was hit over the head. And again, aside from that, we don't even know if Youngster's the one that hit her over the head. All right, this next one comes from, I think she's saying her name is Marnie. Hi, Bob and Mike and Zach. Marnie McCormick here. I'm on the fence with Youngster. I think there's another person involved that we don't know yet. Someone known to Eva or to Youngster and Katie or maybe all three of them. Someone influential enough that they would lie for them. After listening to this week's episode on Youngster, I went back and re-listened to episode 5 of the Transparencies episode just to see, again, how the timelines overlap. It would be so revealing to actually put everyone's statement timeline on a transparency in a different color and overlay them just to see where they all connected. I think some of the truth would be there, the parts that everybody knows happened. You know, I would love to do that, but to be honest with you, I've tried. I cannot figure out a way to, to, I can't figure out a way to visually do it. I've tried it on PowerPoints. I've tried it on Photoshop. I've tried it on paper. I've tried making actual transparencies and I just can't figure out a visual component to do it. But essentially what you have is, you know, as I said, so like what we've talked about with like Katie and Youngster, and obviously we're getting into more of Youngster or KD this weekend. But you got two lines that are following the same track until you get to the point where the door opens to go outside and then they go squiggling off in completely different directions. As far as, as your thoughts on, I, I agree with you. I think there's, I don't think anybody from that apartment acted alone in this. I also don't think anybody in that apartment acted with each other in this. But I do think that there was a co-conspirator of some kind, an accomplice, and I do think that it was an outside source. There has to be a trigger. Something caused, there was, there, there was some sort of trigger that made this attack happen when it did. And that's what I'm trying to figure out is what is the, the, the trigger. If this is a personal cause homicide, which I believe that it was, the Catalina could be killed at any time. You know, if, if, if it's like, you know what, we're going to kill her, that could happen at any time. There was a catalyst that morning. Something happened that made the attack begin when it did and where it did. And the only explanation I can come up with for that is that there is an outside source. There's another person who we don't know yet that came and and it's it's no secret at this point on the top of my list of suspects, and there are still several, and I'm not ruling anybody out, but on the top of my list right now is that Eva's involved in this for all the reasons we've discussed over the last several weeks. But I don't I just don't think Eva just wakes up and oh Jennifer went to make a phone call. I guess right now is a good time to go down and kill my neighbor. I don't think that's what happened. I think that somebody came to that apartment and in my opinion the person that they connected with was likely Eva and then either 
I, I don't know, either Catalina said something to them or that person was, was just as mad or madder about what was going on as Eva was, something. I don't know, but there, there has to be a catalyst somewhere right at 9 o'clock in the morning on that Tuesday morning that caused this to happen. All right, this voicemail comes from Kim. Hi, Bob. Uh, my name is Kim, and um, I've been listening to you since the beginning, but I rarely ask a question or anything because I think you're doing a great job. I not only believe what you believe, which is that it is a stretch to think that a 28-year-old who has kind of escalated in their criminal behavior could really be responsible for something that was from 10 years prior. But I went up a step further. I actually asked my husband, who um, doesn't follow any of the cases. He knows who you are because they talk about you, but he doesn't know any of the cases. But he is the warden of a maximum security prison. And so I thought it would be an interesting question, perspective from him. So I basically posed the question of, you know, 18-year-old in the vicinity of a crime which involved a home invasion. He has, you know, ticky-tack uh, drug charges in and out of jail and prison, little stints here and there, some attempt at a burglary, some attempt at a, a car burglaries and stuff like that. Ten years later, is involved with somebody's in a home invasion where he is killed. Tell me what your thought is about his involvement of a crime similar to that from 10 years ago. And he actually answered it the opposite way that I was asking, but it's interesting, his perspective. And he said, so what you're trying to do is pin this crime 10 years ago on this kid? And I said, okay, yes. And he said, I don't see it. He said, I see it being totally unrelated. And if there is no evidence to support him being involved 10 years ago, that sounds to me like just an accelerated way to close up the books on a crime from 10 years ago. I don't see that being related at all. I see that as an escalation of crimes, blah, blah, blah. Now, he's no criminal behavioralist or anything, but he's been working in maximum security prisons for 32 years and has seen all kinds of people, black, white, doesn't matter. Crime is crime. And he has a very interesting perspective of things when I ask him. So um, I just thought I'd share that. Anyway, hope that helps. Talk to you later. Bye. That's really interesting. Like like you said, uh, your husband's not a criminologist or a behavior analyst, but to me what struck me from that is the very common sense approach he had to it when he said, so you're trying to pin this murder on this guy based on what he did 10 years later. And that's a good point. Cause like in my, in my opinion so far, well, there's not my opinion. There is no evidence. There's no evidence that youngster had anything to do with this murder. There are no witnesses that saw him on the scene. There are, there's none of his forensics. As far as we know, Nobody, you know, uh, uh, Jennifer, even if Jennifer's guilty in, in her confession, doesn't name him. Eva says that they were with her. Like, there's no evidence that they were involved in this crime. And so then it, it feels like when we take and we're looking at, you know, the criminal behavior from, you know, the, from 10 years later, that we're really trying to fit a, a round peg into a square hole. 
I think this would be different if it was like, yeah, six months after this, he broke into a woman's apartment and killed her. And then after that, they broke in another home invasion. That's not what we see with Youngster. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting look at it that, yeah, is there any evidence against him? No. Well, then I don't think that something he did 10 years ago makes him a viable suspect. And I I, I would agree with that. Uh, And Mike, we're running a little bit long and I've still got to get this week's Truth and Justice, the main episode recorded today before I leave for CrimeCon in the morning. So we've got time to do one listener question aside from the voicemails. All right, our lucky listeners, Danny. Could Katie and Youngster have been acting as lookouts from the balcony upstairs? That puts them upstairs, as Eva says, and as involved in the crime. Do any sightings put one or both of them on the balcony? As far as I know, there's no witness statements of anyone seeing Katie or Youngster anywhere until after the management was there. The first sighting that we have from any one of Katie and Youngster, you have the only people that have any sightings of them at all are Jennifer, who says that they were still asleep in the bedroom when she left that morning. Eva, who claims that Katie was sleeping next to her in the apartment and that Youngster was in the back bedroom. Eva, who says they came downstairs with her during the screaming incident and then went back upstairs. Red Rock and Housen we have on the scene. We talked about how consistent their statements are. They didn't, neither one of them. And, and they couldn't miss them. They were standing on the stairs. Neither one of them saw Katie or Youngster anywhere. Uh, nobody saw him on the balcony. The only witness statements we have, the first time from anybody, especially anybody uninvolved who uh, spotted Katie and Youngster, were Cena and Ruby Sullivan, who saw them come out of the apartment, exclaiming that everyone should have heard Catalina screaming. Uh, and with that, thank you, everybody, for your voicemails. And, and feel free, use that voicemail line every week. You know, we, we can't say that we always have time to do it. But I think you all added some great thoughts to the conversation. Uh, it's nice to hear other voices on the podcast, too, instead of me just rambling on all the time. A little bit of Zach, hardly any Mike. Okay, good. See? <laughs> I want you guys to know, and you're going to leave this in, Mike, that right there, I paused <laughs> to make sure I left a moment <laughs> for either one of you two to pop in and say something. And what did you say? Nada. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> So I just want people to know that I'm not hushing you guys. You don't like talking. <laughs> they hate us. I just want you guys to know that I am not hushing these guys. They don't talk when they have the opportunity. And I have this weird thing where I can't stand silence and I have to fill the void. Yeah, it's true. It's actually it's a, it's a compulsive issue. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have it worked on. Uh, that being said, hopefully a lot of you are in Austin. We'll see you at CrimeCon again. Take a look at my social media, all of my social media and Zach's. Uh, he's at Z to the Q because we, I'm sure we'll be doing some fan meetups for drinks this evening, Friday, and probably again on Saturday. And make sure you tune in on Sunday where we're finally getting into KD. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. 
Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. We'll both be, I have no, no speaking engagements at all, so we'll be hanging out in podcast row pretty much all day. We'll be the guys with the uh, cheap beer and expensive whiskey. You see what I did there? I did. I, I did. Like I and like I, I was gonna, I was gonna like hammer down, but I'm, we're just gonna let it ride. That's your thing, Bob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everybody knows. Everybody that's your knows. Thing, Bob. <laughs> I'm so happy that everybody knows that's your thing. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus. Terms apply.